Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm sick of it! Oh, hey, brown line! <laughs> Timing's perfect as always. Boast, Congressman Boast, and State Rep Boast. I'm sick of it! How's it going, everybody? Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, May 20th is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. I'm sick of it! The Chicago Federation of Labor, our sponsors. I'm sick of it! As well as Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what to smoke. It's true. They talk about smoking pot. And so much more, like political columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky and Maya Duke Masava, Chicago Reader. And hey, if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. There, not only will you be able to find our endless archive of episodes, over 1,000, you'll also be able to become a binhead. Yeah. You can help the program by becoming a binhead. Are you a binhead? No? Well, you should be. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. You can either be in the alley, the avenue, or the boulevard. The choice is yours. So many choices. Oh, man. Uh, ChicagoReader.com. Go check it out. And the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. Thursday, May 20th, and live from my apartment and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, the return of Miles Porter and also making his return, PC Peter Cunningham. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this White Sox Melodrama Thursday, and here's why. Now, I know, ladies and gentlemen, yes, yes, I know, we are a political podcast. And as such, I also know that we have very, very, very strict rules about not talking about sports. Yes, I'm a sports fanatic, but these rules are enforced by the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. Yes, Dr. D. No sports. <laughs> I feel he a sports rant coming. I feel, iron fist. I feel a sports talk coming. <laughs> I will now t- let you in on our pre-show production. And it went a little like this. Start with me. D.D., I really want to talk about Tony LaRussa and your mom, Mercedes, and the controversy known as Mercedes Gate. And Dennis puffing on his pipe. That's sports, Ben, and we're politics. Yes, yes, Dennis has been smoking a pipe. That was all true except the pipe. (laughs) He thinks thinks it'll help him get a job with BEZ. But Ben... (laughs) Oh, are you okay? (laughs) 
Just the notion of Dennis smoking a pipe is really making me. Anyway, but back to our pre-show conversation. Me, but DD, everyone's talking about it. Even WBEZ. And Dennis goes, WBEZ. How old am I? 80? Okay, then we'll get to talk about it. Yes, yes, ladies and gentlemen, White Sox melodrama is such big news in Chicago. Five days and counting, I think it's no four days and counting. It's been front page news in the sports section that even WBEZ is talking about it. But they're doing it in their classic BEZ fashion. Well, it's so ironic. They play a game with balls and sticks, and people watch. How ironic. I'm never getting the job there. <laughs> No, he's really good, PEC. Don't blame me on him, okay? So, yes, we're going to get to a lot of political talk. We got on deck Peter PC Cunningham, the brains behind Daily Rom and Arnie Duncan, our show's favorite centrist, and every lefty show has to have a centrist. But first, I feel compelled. We must explore Mercedes Gate. And don't worry. I'll make it political. First things you need to know, non-baseball fans, and I know there's a lot of non-baseball fans out there, the manager at the center of this controversy is named Tony LaRusso, not LaRusso, okay? His name is LaRusso, not LaRusso. It's a common mistake to turn LaRusso into LaRusso, probably because people are more familiar with the latter than the former. In fact, to bring in the politics... I remember a Daily Plaza pep rally in 1983, a year before either my guest Miles Porter or my producer Dennis were born, after the Sox won the division title. And that pep rally, which I attended because I'm a lifelong Chicago White Sox fan, a member of the Chicago White Sox fan club at Evanston Township High School, I will remind you. That pep rally was emceed by Harold Washington, the greatest mayor Chicago has ever had. But as a great a mayor as Harold was, he didn't know jack about sports, which didn't stop him from pretending he knew something about sports. A pretense he shared with Mayor Rahm, who was always trying to impress people with his knowledge of sports, but only managed to reveal how little he actually knew about sports because he got generally got things wrong whenever he mentioned it. Like the time he said Bobby Hall was dead, even though the greatest Blackhawk ever was very much alive when he said it. But back to Harold Washington. At this pep rally for the 1983 Division champs, he kept referring to Tony LaRusso as Tony LaRusso, probably because we had at the time a congressman from the southwest side of Chicago named Marty Russo. And LaRusso got so irritated by hearing the mayor of Chicago mispronounce his name that when he got to the mic, he thanked the mayor and made a point of calling him Mayor Washington. This was back, as I said, in 1983, which is 38 years ago. Tony LaRusso is now 76, which means he was, hold on, I'm going to do the math, 38 years old then. So he was considered a young Turk, a young man in the game of baseball. And yet, as you could see, even as a young man, he was kind of grumpy. A very important point to remember as I delve into the further details of Mercedes Gates setting up my conversation with Miles. Here we go. Here is the situation. It was on Monday. The Sox are crushing the Minnesota Twins, winning 14-4 in the ninth. That means they just had three outs to go, and it's a win. 
The Twins essentially raised the white flag by bringing in a utility infielder to pitch, not wanting to waste a real pitcher in a game that they clearly lost. The utility infielder is throwing softballs to the plate, like 45 miles an hour pitches, which may seem fast to you and me, ladies and gentlemen, but trust me, it's really slow to a major league hitter. Tony LaRussa gives the don't swing signal from the dugout to Mercedes, who's at the plate, on the grounds that it would be rubbing it in, bad sportsmanship to swing at a softball pitch when you're thumping a team by 10 runs. Mercedes misses the sign, swings away, hits a homer, and now LaRussa is even madder than he was when Harold Washington mispronounced his name back in 1983. This is insubordination, ladies and gentlemen. His player did not obey his commands. After the game, Tony gathered the press corps around, apologized to the Twins. Yes, he apologized to the Twins for hitting a homer. And he chastised Mercedes. That is, he threw his player under a bus. And he lectured all the press corps. This is not how the game is supposed to be played. It's all about sportsmanship, yada, yada, yada. And thus, Mercedes Gate has erupted. It's all anybody in the sports world is talking about these days. The back page, my beloved bright one, still features a big, huge picture about it here. I'm showing Miles the picture. Did Mercedes break the unwritten rule by swinging on a 3-0 pitch when his team was crushing the other team? Does such a rule even exist? Or is Tony LaRusso, not LaRusso, just an egomaniac? Did he hurt team chemistry by throwing his player under the bus? And if fans like homers and turn to baseball in part to see homers, why are people in baseball apologizing for giving fans what they want? As you can see, so much to talk about. And I laid it all out to Dennis this morning. He put down his pipe and he says, run with it, Ben. (laughs) And that's what we're going to do. We're running with it. So, yes, we have a great show today. Plenty of political talk ahead of us. Peter P.C. Cunningham will be coming in. We'll be talking about politics. We'll talk about policing. We'll talk about Mayor Lightfoot in the press. We'll talk about all the big issues of the day. Biden. But before we do that, we're bringing on Miles Porter, podcaster, baseball coach, baseball player, baseball trainer, and good friend of the former editor of this show and good friend of the Ben Drowski show to explain it all. Miles, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Ben. Thank you for having me. I always love being back with you guys, you know, back to my roots. I love it. Yes. Back in the old days, uh, Miles worked with us at the studio. Those are days long, long ago. Now he's in his house. I'm in my attic and Dennis is in his apartment. All right, Miles, uh, you played baseball your whole life. You're now in your early 20s and uh, you, you coach baseball now. You train baseball players. You love the game still. If you were Tony La Russa, and you were the manager of the White Sox, or if you were Miles Porter and manager of the White Sox, and your team is up by 10 runs in the ninth inning, would you instruct the batter not to swing at a 3-0 and pitch, or would you just let the batter hit away? Go. Let him hit away. Keep playing hard all nine innings. Uh, you know, one of the things of, that we're always being taught, uh, you know, going back to, you know, my days of playing college ball at Oakton is, don't don't ever take a pitch off. It doesn't matter how much you're up by. It doesn't matter how much you're down by. Uh, anything can happen. It's baseball. It's not it's not football or basketball. There's no timer in this game. There's no limit to how many pitches are thrown. There's a limit to how many outs there are in an inning. But easily, you know, a team can easily put up a 12 spot, and all of a sudden now the game's closed again. All of a sudden now you're losing. It's happened. This is a possible thing. So 
my my biggest uh issue with everything going on uh specifically when it comes to these unwritten rules of baseball they go back they go back years and years and years um and and you know at the same time you respect them you understand it but as as we progress as a society as we move on there's certain traditions and there's certain things that change not everything's going to stay the same we're we're living in a generation of players who want to go out there and play hard every single game inning out and pitch they want to go out there and they want to play they don't want to just take pitches they don't want to concede because the other team has conceded if the if your opponent throws up the white flag that's on them in my opinion you go out there you play all night innings you play your butt off 3-0 count 2-0 count if you poke it over the wall you poke it over the wall Benny, this oh my gosh, this man is throwing forty-seven mile per hour fastballs over the plate, juicy fastballs. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like my dad when he sees chicken. Okay, what, what? He, he's just gonna look at it. He's just gonna be like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm gonna take another one right down the middle. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're mean. Swing and swing hard and keep swinging hard. This is his rookie season. He's broke out a little bit later than most players are. This is how he's paying the light. This is how he's paying for the gas, the electricity. He's playing for a contract next year, whether he's with the White Sox or not. That home run adds another home run to his stats. Okay, and I know it's not all like just about stats, but at the same time, he's still going out there and playing hard just because that team throws up the white flag. You don't throw up the white flag either. You keep going because that's how we're so that's how we're supposed to play baseball. That's how we're playing sports. Play hard until it's done. And that is my issue with uh, this unwritten rules. Like, oh, well, it's a respecting. Isn't it kind of not respectful to kind of just be like, oh, well, you know. You know, we hey we beat we beat them. We might as well just might as well just kick back now. You know, they kick back. Let's kick back. It's not like it's not like we're playing these players billions of dollars. It's not like fans paid money to come to the game. You know, it's not like there's a whole fan base and you know a younger generation of players are looking up to us. No, no. You know, you know we're winning. They're losing. Forget it. Whatever. It's fine. Bull crap. Get over yourself. Tony La Russa, uh, legend, have so much respect for him. I have so much respect for what he did uh, with the Cardinals. And, you know, he's done other things for Major League Baseball. Uh, but uh, he's 76 years old. Uh, he's a little bit up there. His way of thinking back in the Andre Dawson days is a little bit different from <laughs> Fernando Tatis and your mean Mercedes. There's a little bit of a time gap there. So in my opinion, if you cannot stick up for your players in the media or don't say anything about it at all, you're not fit to be, you're not fit to be a manager. And one of the arguments I heard yesterday in my house is, Oh, well, he puts the lineup together. All right. You can put together a lineup. Anyone can put together a lineup, but it doesn't matter if your team is winning. If there's no camaraderie, if there's no trust in the manager or the coach, then what are we doing here? That's going to down the line. That's going to hurt you in some sort of way, just because you have a winning record and you know, he's putting together the lineup and all this other stuff. Great. Awesome. They were, they, were, they had a winning lineup last year before Lurusa came around with Rick Renteria. That's fine. If you're going to throw your players under the bus and then say sorry to the other team, <laughs> you said sorry to the Twins. Yeah, you said sorry to them. <laughs> That's my issue here, Betty J. That is my issue here, especially with me being a young baseball player. If I feel like my coach, my manager, isn't going to have my back, regardless if we're winning or losing, that's going to hurt us in some sort of way. Maybe not now, maybe not in two months, but it's going to hurt us down the line. 
All right. I, I got to let that was a great riff, by the way, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, I, I witnessed the uh, debate discussion uh, that Miles alluded to uh, in the middle of that riff. It was at his house last night and uh, we were watching the basketball. We may, may throw a basketball question on before it's all done. Uh, and his father and my friend and our friend Norm, man, they went at it. <laughs> they did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. They went at it. Uh, and, um, I I've got this thing about unwritten rules. Let's take a little exploration about that. Tony LaRusso is all of a sudden citing an unwritten rules. Well, the problem with an unwritten rule, if it's not written then you don't really know if it's a really a rule or it's just something that exists in Tony LaRusso's mind. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I am a, a, a baseball fan. It goes way, way, way back. I always like to say way, way long before miles was born. And it's not like this is the first time. Some player has ever said, forget you. You're throwing a softball at me. I'm hitting it out. It's not like this notion that like, oh, this is how we played the game back in the day. And they don't respect the game. This is such a miles. Don't get me started. I told you this last night. I remember I was, uh, we were talking about this last night back in 1970, Pete Rose who played for the Cincinnati Reds in an all-star game. So you talk about a game that doesn't matter. It's an exhibition game, has no standing whatsoever on uh, what the how the teams do. So he, at this game, he's he's on second. I think it was a Cub, hit a, Jim Hickman, I think it was, hit a single. The uh, Rose rounds third, comes barreling home. Ray Fossey is the catcher standing at the plate. Rose barrels into Ray Fossey to score the winning run, to win an all-star game, treating an all-star game, an exhibition game, like it's the World Series, really damaged Ray Fossey's career. He was never the same after that. He had an injury. That's about as old school as you can get, Miles Porter. So how is it that there's an unwritten rule that goes way back that you don't show up your opponent, that when the game doesn't really matter, you raise the white flag – if Pete Rose broke that rule back in the old days. So my question to you is, are these unwritten rules really rules? Or are they just things that exist in the minds of people like Tony LaRusso and maybe, you know, just a peculiarity of uh, this individual or that individual? I think, I think, you know, it could kind of be a little bit of both. I think uh, ethically, you know, there's a difference between having respect for an opponent and just feeling bad. And I think that's kind of where the unwritten rules come in. I think, when it comes to like the unwritten rules, it's like, hey, we're beating the crap out of the team. We're really handing it to them. I feel kind of bad. Let's kind of ease up on them a little bit. You know, that's what we do. That's how, that's how, that's us being respectful. That's us letting them know, hey, we beat you, but we're not going to beat you anymore. And I think that's where those unwritten rules come from uh, back in the day. But like you said, this is, uh, this isn't the first time this has happened. I think this, I think it's something that certain managers enforce a little bit harder than others. Uh, different managers display it in different sort of ways. And Larusa was displayed it in a more public, uh, honest, old school way. Had he said this about, I don't know, 25 to 30 years ago, this wouldn't be an issue in my opinion. I don't think it would. I think it would have been handled much differently, but we live in a generation now where I do think uh, the style of play and a little bit more of an independent thinking sort of uh, style of baseball is going on. That's why this is, more of an issue. 
Um, and you know, players players want to go out there and play, Benny J. I want to go out there and I want to play. I don't care if I'm losing. I don't care if I'm winning. Did I tell you that in fall of 2017, when I played at Oakton, we lost 28 to three. <laughs> We lost what was the 20, score? 28 to 3. Uh, Coach Frado, if you're listening to this, Coach G, I'm sorry I brought this up. We won the championship the next year. It's okay. It, we're good. But we still went out there. We still kept on playing. Uh, they didn't let up the gas on us. Uh, you know, we uh, we went up there and we tried to get it going, but it was kind of hard once, once they got to 19 <laughs> runs. I'll be honest with you. It's hard after a little bit. It, it, it's demoralizing a little bit. But you know what? You learn from it. You learn from things like that. You learn from losing games like that. What could we have done better? Uh, you know what? There's just going to be days you're just going to get your ass handed to. Yeah. That's it. You're going to you're going to feel like you have your best stuff, and all of a sudden the, the opponent's going to prove you otherwise. Like, hey, your fastball it's not moving like it usually is. That curveball isn't breaking like you think it is. I'm going to poke it over the wall. I'm going to hit a double. I'm going to hit that ball hard right at you, right at your first baseman or your shortstop, and they're going to make an error because they're not going to feel it. Just baseball. We can't. We can't. We can't do this thing where we're just gonna, you know, be nice and ease up on people. Uh, unwritten rules. I think it is more of a hey, let's not be too mean to them kind of thing. And I think it exists more in other managers than it does than it does not. Uh, so you know, it's kind of tricky. Well, let me uh, throw my wife's theory at you, which is really funny. I never in a million years would think my wife would have a theory about this or even know anything about it. She's really not a sports fan. I'll take really out of that sentence. She's not a sports fan in any way, but somehow or other, this uh, this issue found its way uh, into her hairdressing shop. Yesterday. People were talking about it while they were getting their hair cut. Uh, and so that's how she learned about it. And she, when she heard the story, her response uh, which is one that really made a lot of sense to me is that this was a clear cut case of an egomaniac in this case, Tony La Russa, who is upset because he, there was this public display of insubordination, even though it really wasn't insubordination. Mercedes didn't see the sign, but whatever it could be viewed as a public display of insubordination. So it was incumbent upon him to let the world know that he, Tony LaRusso was in charge, not Mercedes. And that was what this was all about. This was all about him protecting his damaged ego. What's your thoughts on that theory? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's, that's very possible. Uh, you know, I think protecting his ego, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping his ego's okay. The, the socks are doing pretty exceptional. The last time I checked, uh, I think, I, I really think it is his morals, his baseball morals that he's grown up with playing and managing and coaching. I think, uh, you know, at that point at 76 years old, I'm assuming there's not much changing at that point that you can, <laughs> you can really tell someone. But yeah. these are morals that he's grown up with. Uh, and, you know, it, in many ways, this was, uh, this is something that wasn't very surprising to me. It just wasn't, uh, you know, I knew if a moment came up like this, I'm like, all right, well, you know, he's going to he's going to say something about it because, you know, that's not that's not the ball he grew up with. His morals are different than, you know, the players of tomorrow who are going to be coaches than their morals. I think a lot of these unwritten rules are not going to exist 30, 40 years down the line because coaches like me and players like me, once we're managing teams or coaching teams or whatever, we're not going to tell our players Hey, we're, we're, we're beating the crap out of the team. Yeah. Ease up on them. Be nice. Uh, uh, by the way, I just uh, want to point out, uh, following up on Miles, said that the White Sox are probably the most exciting team in baseball right now. They're in first place in their division. They won last night. 
two or yesterday, two to one. They're 11, uh, 10 games over the 500 mark. I want to say I'm doing this off the top of my head. Yep, yep, yep. They're absolutely exciting. This old White Sox uh, fan club guy is really pumped up. Everybody I know wants to go to the game. Uh, even Miles' dad, who's a lifelong Cubs fan, is jumping aboard the bandwagon. I think the part of the reason why he doesn't like Tony La Russa, by the way, is because he is a Cub fan and he de- won't forgive Tony La Russa for having managed the Cardinals. I think that's what's really going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. So I could make the argument that Tony LaRusso is really a genius and that he's created this issue that diverts attention from his players, takes the pressure off his players. Everyone's mad at Tony LaRusso. Everyone's talking about Tony LaRusso. No one's talking about the pressure of holding on to the lead, the games. I might say that he's crazy like a fox and that, uh, in fact, he's doing this as a part, a way to divert attention from his players, divert the pressure from his players. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know what? Um, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a deep theory you have there, Benny J. That's a, that's a good reach there. Um, here, here's why I think uh, this is kind of bad for baseball. It's not like baseball already doesn't have enough issues going on from bad umpiring uh, Angel Hernandez, you don't deserve a job. Get out of baseball. Uh, <laughs> pace of play. Um, oh cheating scandals. Yeah. Uh, uh, a larger list of issues that I won't even begin to get started on. And I think if he is diverting the attention away from certain things, it's almost like he's adding to another <laughs> list of reasons why fans are a little bit frustrated with certain states of Major League Baseball right now. Uh, I, You know what? This is this is good controversy. This is good conversation to have within the baseball community, um, but I don't think it's good in a sense for players who really want to just be themselves when they're playing. Yeah. Well, I uh, by the way, yesterday's Cubs game was hilarious. I know we're not now we're going on a tangent, uh, but. The, uh, Davey Martinez, who's the manager of Washington, got so mad at a call. Speaking of bad calls, by it was a wretched call. He picked up first base, just picked it up and threw it. It was like Lou Pinella back in the day. Threw first base. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So anyway, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm totally on the White Sox bandwagon. And uh, if, 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 um, if Tony La Russa is a world champion and the White Sox are world champions this year, I'm going to tip my hat to him. Congratulations, Tony. And again, one more time, folks. He was the manager of the White Sox way, way, way back in the ancient days yeah. in the late 70s. Bill Vec hired him in the early 80s. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf fired him. It was the dumbest move Jerry Reinsdorf has ever made. Well, no, the second dumbest move. The first dumbest move was running Michael Jordan out of town. That was the dumbest move that <laughs> Jerry Reinsdorf made. On the, but his second dumbest move was firing Tony LaRusso. And I think Jerry Reinsdorf understands that. That's why I brought him back this year. So go White Sox. I'm very excited. Before we let you go, i got to ask you about the main event at your house last night. We were watching it. Uh, pretty much everyone in the sports world is talking about it. What a great game that was. Basketball. Yep. The Lakers and the Warriors went at it. I was rooting for the Warriors, but they fell short. LeBron James hit a three-point shot. Miles, that was just like. It was it was like Babe Ruth like it was Michael Jordan like it was just such a clutch play at the end of the game. He had been hitting the eye. He couldn't see that he was blurry. You know what I mean? But he still yeah. hit that shot. I'm like, yeah. how can this guy get any greater than he is? Uh, that was again, I was rooting for the Warriors, but I had to just step back and say, 
you're the greatest right now. I said, right now. Okay. (laughs) I didn't say of all time. Right now, you're the greatest. Your thoughts on last night's game. Oh, man. What what a game. What a game by both sides. And if I'm not mistaken, I think when he hit that three, I think there was still like 58 seconds left. I I think there was still a good amount of game left, but it's still, you, it was, it was, it was still the nail in the coffin. It's, you know, it was such a timely shot. There's really nothing Curry can, there's nothing Steph Curry can do uh, when LeBron James is really going to shoot the ball. There's not much, you know, there's not much uh, resistance he could put up. There's not much defense he could put on LeBron. Um, And I think, uh, you know, that was just a moment where it was like, all right, well, (laughs) that one didn't feel good just because the magnitude and the timing of the shot itself. That was a nail in the coffin. That kind of had the words like, oh, man, now we got to – we kind of got to press now to tie it up. We need a three or we need an and one and then, you know, make sure we make that free throw shot or we got to make a three by Steph. And, you know, you know they're going to guard Steph tight the rest of that game, the rest of, you know, that sliver of a minute. So, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. I'm a big Steph Curry fan. And I love LeBron James. So, I loved it. Well, I – um I'm a big Bulls fan. My beloved Bulls are nowhere near the playoffs, so I'm just uh, <laughs> settling on whatever. I go game to game. So last night I was rooting for the Warriors, yeah. and uh, uh, I, I don't think I'll ever root for the Lakers. Uh, but uh, anyway, Miles, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to discuss uh, the White Sox situation. I knew uh, you had a lot to say uh, about it, and you did not disappoint. Uh, and we'll talk to you real soon, all right? Thank you for having me, Benny J. All right, that's the great Miles Porter, our baseball expert. Uh, Peter P.C. Cunningham's on deck. We're going to take a break, and when we return, we're going to talk all things politics, policing, national, local. Maybe uh, pick Peter Cunningham's brain about relationships between reporters and mayors, something he knows a little bit about. He was the brains, as I like to say. I always say this when he comes on the show. He was the brains behind Daly and Rom. If they ever said anything intelligent, it was probably because Peter Cunningham wrote it. He always gets mad when I say it, which is part of the reason why I say it. We're going to take a break and come right back with Peter P.C. Cunningham. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from his attic. That was Michael Girardi. I want to be a centrist, a stinging Neil Young-like guitar solo in the middle of it. Probably reminded a lot of our listeners of Peter Cunningham playing the guitar. Uh, Peter P.C. Cunningham, speechwriter, political strategist, great thinker, and friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show. Welcome back, Peter. Nice to be here, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing well. And um, I have a whole list of things I want to talk to you about, very serious topics, most of which you suggested. They were great suggestions, including crime, uh, crime in the city of Chicago in particular. And we're going to get into that. We can talk about elected school board. We'll get into that. I once had a great argument slash debate with Peter. It's just coming back to me. You probably don't remember this. You were driving me in your, we were going down Lakeshore drive. It was a rainy day. You were taking me to an interview with a principal on the South side of Chicago. I'll never forget it. We I were, remember. <laughs> we were arguing about elected school board. It was pouring rain down. Peter was like, this guy's really irritating anyway, but we'll hold off uh, on all that uh, for a while. Get to all that stuff. I just got to ask you, uh, you've been dealing with reporters from the other side. Uh, for all these years, you were a press secretary to Mayor Daly, and I know you were never a press secretary to Rom, but uh, you helped him out from time to time on strategy, and you were, of course, Arnie Duncan's press secretary. So you must have some thoughts about uh, what went down yesterday uh, after Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, revealed that she had a policy where she was going to give priority uh, to reporters of color when it came to one-on-one interviews. And it was really, yeah. she was very specific about it. She was very precise. 
priority to reporters of color on one-on-one interviews regarding her second year in office. Your thoughts? It wasn't just a priority. It was a prohibition against anyone who's not a reporter of color. She flat out said she was not going to do one-on-ones with uh, white reporters. You know, I will say this much. It sure got people talking, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And if that was the goal, then it was a raging success. I mean, she raised an issue. She got got people talking. I would have advised against it. Of course, I don't, you know, uh, I don't advise the mayor. Um, Not in her circle of advisors. Uh, I would have advised against it, but it really got a lot of people talking. And you know what? I I tracked a bunch of uh, reporters, and it's interesting how divided they are. Well, Craig Delamore, for one, a reporter of color, cheered it. Uh, You know Craig, BBM radio reporter for decades. I mean, he was there when I was there um, in the 90s. Uh, He cheered it. Um, You know, I've seen uh, BEZ sort of, first of all, point out that two of their reporters are people of color who are covering City Hall, the mayor said no one, not a single beat reporter, uh, is a person of color. So BBC debunked that claim. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I would have advised against it. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you should do. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think I've said this to you before, that the best things mayors do is when they bring people together. And she could have really started that conversation directly with station managers, with newspapers and editorials and things like that. And it would have been a productive conversation. It may still be a productive conversation. As I said, people talking about it. And guess who hates it? Tucker Carlson. (laughs) (laughs) That alone, that alone is a reason to stand with the mayor on this one. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Tucker Carlson picks and chooses the issues in which he uh, defends Mayor Lori Lightfoot. He's apparently against her uh, on this sh- issue, but he's very much supportive of her when it comes to bashing the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and uh, I, just pointing that out. And uh, I'd also want to point out to Mayor Lori Lightfoot, I, I actually agree with her uh, on the issue. Of, well, first of all, it's just to Even correct though you're her. not a reporter of color. It, well, okay, there's a, uh, I, okay, there's a many issues about me personal, which I'll get into, but I just want to point out I'm defending Lori Lightfoot, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for all those uh, people who say I'm too hard on her. She did say, and when she followed up uh, in her clarification, I love it when politicians do clarifications, Peter. It's after people like Peter Cunningham go, call them up and go, boss, you're really screwed up. We need a f- clarification. They come out with a clarification. So her clarification, which is in her words or, or on her uh, Twitter feed, I presume she writes her own Twitter feed, that there's not someone speech writer writing her Twitter feed, is that she's giving priority. So originally, oh, uh, oh, we, so oh, so it, it, she did clarify that she meant priority, not prohibition. Okay. Well, okay, so just more up to speed than I am. For the record, it was Marianne and her, the legendary uh, NBC reporter, who said that some press, unnamed press secretary, told her that she would not be doing one-on-ones with white reporters, uh, and uh, so. When Mayor Lori Lightfoot first addressed it, she said it was going to be a priority. Uh, neither here uh, nor there. My, the my, bigger my question is the bigger question is how she doing after two years. Well, that, <laughs> well, what's your thoughts? How is Mayor Lori Lightfoot doing after two years? I mean, I think she's um, I think she's struggling in some areas, particularly in crime. I mean, she's getting the FOP just did a vote of no confidence on her. She's um, sparring with the inspector general around some transparency issues. Uh, you know, the gap of um, the civilian oversight folks are 
pushing an ordinance that would basically, you know, remove her control over the police department, which I think is crazy. Uh, I mean, she, she wouldn't be able to hire or fire the superintendent. She wouldn't have the control over the budget. Uh, you know, what does she have? So I think that's crazy. As you know, I'm against taking away control of the school board. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think we elect a mayor to, to run these things, not to stand around and do nothing. Uh, to, you know, they're supposed to do more than pick up the garbage. I think she's done a pretty good job on the pandemic. You know, I think as well as anybody. So, and, and the pandemic was something no mayor before in a long time had to deal with. Uh, well, you can take a long time out of that sentence. No mayor has ever had to deal with a pandemic in our lifetime. And you and I are, well, me, I'm old. You're a young know. man, but. There was a pandemic in 1918. I don't know how. <laughs> Even I wasn't around for that one. No, no, we weren't here, but I'm saying there have been pandemics. Yeah. Uh, but either way, in, in recent memory, no one's dealt with anything like the pandemic. And I think she's done a good job. I think she's done a good job fiscally, fundamentally. You know, she's she's you know she's doing what she can. She inherited uh, issues just like uh, Rahm inherited issues, and uh, you know, so you could quibble over certain things. But I think she's done a good job there. Uh, you know, my garbage gets picked up every week, so that part of the job is still on track. But I think the crime is the one that's really the big struggle for. Her. Well, I, I, I would disagree with you. Uh, you're not surprised in this. Um, the notion of, that the mayor has to be this all-powerful person that has control, absolute control over hiring and budgets. Uh, I do not believe we live in a autocracy. I believe we live in a democracy. And um, I do believe m most people uh, in the city of Chicago are very concerned about things like garbage pickup. Uh, so if a mayor is in charge of the garbage pickup, which is a conversation, whether she is actually the one responsible for it. It is important if garbage is, if basic essential city, service, like this train running right now by my house, making a sound has not stopped running since mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, was elected mayor. It was running all the time. It's critical as I was of Rom. It always ran when Rom was mayor too, and daily as well. Right. And so these basic essential city services, I think that's a very important well, I mean, part. Well, I didn't mean to diminish them. I wasn't saying they're not important. I'm just saying that part of the job she's done well. She's, you know, the, the basic city services are still uh, maintained. Um, and we all know that there are times in our history where some of those things have slipped and there were consequences to that. Yes. You 19... were probably here in the, in the snowstorm of 78, right? Yes. 1978, 79, the mayor was Michael Blandick. Uh, and uh, he lost the next election and be in part because uh, the city did such a bad job of, oh, it was worse than that, Peter. I don't know if you were in Chicago, but to, not to go I back historically. Uh, I was oh, yeah. told the story a thousand times. <laughs> well, it was, it, I mean, it, it was, I think even Chicago voters are, would have been tolerant of just, being overwhelmed by a snowstorm, but it was other things he did. Like he announced we were going to sh uh, have parking lots. We're going to clear parking lots. So you can move your car to the parking, lot, like the parking lot at Comiskey park, the old Comiskey park where the white Sox play. You could, we're going to dig it out. You can move your car. So all these Chicagoans are digging out their cars. They drive them down the Comiskey park. Guess what, Peter? It's not cleared out. It right. was, it was like, it was, it was beyond the snow. It was, and yeah. then the trains that was, would not stop on the South side. Oh God, I could go on and on, but yeah. I, let's just explore this. I, I would like to hear, um, and you're, let's redo, relive that great debate we had in the car in the rain. In your opinion, why is it so fundamentally important for a mayor 
to have such oversight and things like police and uh, the schools. Go ahead. Well, I think they're critical to the city's future and both of them. And, uh, you know, they're literally maybe the most important things to the city. Keep us safe and educate our kids. And um, if the mayor doesn't have uh, oversight of, of that, then uh, it's given to a bunch of other people. And who are those other people? Well, the bottom line is uh, the turnout in those other kinds of elections are typically much lower. Most people can't name who's on the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District. But guess what? If that thing stopped working well, people would be mad. They'd probably be mad at the mayor, even though the mayor doesn't run it, right? So I think that we elect a mayor to do what's most important to our city. And those are the things that are most important. And to take that away and turn it over to a 21-member elected school board. 21 members, 20 of whom each have districts. So what happens when you have people with districts? Now they don't really care about the whole system. They care only about their schools. 20 districts, 650 schools. That's about 30 schools per district, right? So you got somebody way in the south side. He's got his issues. You got somebody way in the north side. He's got different issues. They're not really coordinating. They're just fighting each other for resources, sort of the way the city council works. And, you know, you only have one, one citywide elected official, school board president. So that lets, that's like having a second mayor. The next thing you know, this really, really important institution is now being run by all these new class of politicians, all these new politicians. And we have a lot of politicians. We have a lot of units of local government. If we're going to have an elected school board and then an elected police board, why not an elected park board? A lot of, a lot of places around the state have that. Why not have an elected CTA board? Why not have an elected uh, streets and sanitation department? After a while, where do you stop? I mean, this is why we hire the mayor. You know, I can make the argument having heard that. Let's, let's just do away with all elections. Let's just have one election. Let's just elect a mayor. That's it. Kind of why have way, it? Kind of the way it is. <laughs> why have? Why elect Alderman? Why elect anybody? Just no, 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 no. I think you need a second <laughs> branch of government. That's the point of having a city council. And I'd be all for. You know, I've heard a lot of theories about we're a weak mayor, strong council government, but everybody knows in practice it's the opposite. So I'm all for finding ways to balance that power relationship in new ways. Uh, I'm just not for adding more and more politicians to the mix. And I'm not for uh, essentially taking the mayor out of the conversation. And that's what happens. Well, I could make the argument uh, for all its faults that the Chicago City Council is a far more productive overseer of the city and the mayor than the Board of Education is. I can make the argument that the Board of Education appointed by the mayor uh, has been lackluster rubber stamp that looks the other way at all kinds of egregious scandals, uh, municipal financing scams, uh, wasted money, bad programs, dumb ideas, never speaks out against anything like deprives them of money. Like just one example. The parking meter deal. Silence from the elected the school board, even though this was a, wait, a financial. Wait, 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 wait. Where was the city council? This city council that you think is such an effective overseer. Where were they on the parking meter deal? I, I, well, let's do the math. There were five opponents to the parking meter in the city council, and there were zero opponents to that deal out of the school board. I'm going to do my math. Hold on. Now, I'm not damn this. I admit I'm not great at math, but let me see which is more zero or one, two, three, four. Why are you expecting the city school board to wait on the parking meter deal? 
Well, because I'm going to quote to you what one very astute, and I will, he will remain off the record because it was a private conversation. One very astute observer of city government once said, he said to me, Ben, you have to understand with the way the city of Chicago works, it's like a, all the money that comes in, it's like a giant pool and it all flows in and it's up to the mayor to distribute appropriately. And it, he has, it's all fungible. It's like, doesn't matter where it's coming from. It's all coming in and that's how our city works. And so the mayor controls it. Right. And so if you view a uh, parking meter revenue, that's going out the door as public dollars that could otherwise be spent on city services, then that's money that the property tax will have to go to replenish. And therefore there will not be property tax dollars for the public schools. And so if you had astute fiduciary garden guardians of the public purse running the public schools, they would say, you know what, Mr. Mayor, we don't think this is a good idea for you to take a $10 billion asset and sell it for $1 billion. And we're looking out for the school children of the people of the city of Chicago. We, you know, well, again, I'm not Daniel Best. The parking meters was not funding the schools. Uh, the parking meters was funding city services. And it was done at a time when the state, the city was in the middle, when we were in the middle of a recession and they were facing massive, massive layoffs. And the mayor, Mayor Daly, whether you like it or not, and I know you don't like it, and a lot of people don't like it, but he made the decision to do that instead of laying off 5,000 cops and firemen, which is what he would have had to do. You can disagree with the decision, but that's what he did. He did that to avoid layoffs in the middle of a recession and to avoid a tax hike in the middle of a recession. By the way, he also raised taxes for schools like every year, almost every single year. So, you know, that's what that's the upside of mayoral control. He did that. We could end up electing a board of people who are tax funds against taxes. We could elect a board of people, none of whom are parents, right? We could elect a board of people who are all charter advocates. We could elect a board filled with uh, union union advocates so the union could have people on both sides of the bargaining table. Anything is possible with this elected school board. So we're going to end up with some very contentious elections, big money elections like in L.A. where they spent $17 million on the last school board election cycle. And guess what the turnout was, Ben? Uh, 28%. No, 8%. <laughs> I forgot. I added it too. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Uh, by the way, I could just say sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm telling you, literally nothing has changed in my relationship with Peter Cunningham in ten years. We had the same discussion in that car in the rain. The only difference was that talking point about LA had not emerged yet. All the other. No, that's new. That's but new. No, that's a new one. I see it everywhere. <laughs> someone came, someone who knows absolutely nothing about LA or anything has put that out there. I see it in columns by uh, civic people, editorial boards. Anyway, you, you know, know listen, the deal is I think it's going to pass in Springfield. It's possible they'll come up with a hybrid for a couple of years uh, that preserves mayoral uh, oversight, but then it's going to transition to a full elected board. Uh, clearly, that's what the public wants. And the men and women who are elected to go to Springfield and, you know, fulfill the public will are going to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think this debate is close to over and we will see, you know, I mean, I, we'll I, see. like everybody, I, I'm, I'm not rooting for it to fail. If, it, if, if it's an elected school board, I'll be more engaged than anybody. Trust me, uh, because I care about the issue and I do take the time to learn about candidates and down ballot races. I just think that most people won't. And 
basically the running of the school will be run by a bunch of people who nobody knows. And it'll be impossible to say who's really accountable when they don't like things. Mm. You know, when you have 21 well, we'll members see. on uh, the board, when you have 21 members on the board and we have corruption, because anyone who thinks that just because we're an elected school board, we're not going to have corruption and we're not going to have academic struggle is wrong. We're going to have it under any circumstances. And we have it all over the country in elected school board races. But the point is that who are they going to go to? They're going to go to those 21 members. Those 21 members will start pointing at each other and saying, I didn't vote for this. I didn't vote for that. I didn't like that guy. I want to get rid of him. <laughs> I said it in a private meeting two weeks ago, we should get rid of him. It wasn't me. And you know what? People will just be frustrated. So. That's All right, I'm, uh, I'll let you have the final word and no, we'll move no. on. No, and uh, that's fine. Uh, I'm bigger than that, Peter. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, the crime issue. Every time you come on, uh, we have a conversation about it, and every time it gets uh, even more depressing in some ways. Oh, my God. Uh, so they just mm-hmm. released the fact that we've had 108 children shot this year in Chicago so far. 108. 16 of them fatally. So we've had about 19 weeks in this year so far, right? A little under five months. And we basically had a child killed every single week, almost every week. We've had about um, five kids shot every single week. So we're in, it's, it's really, really a bad year. Um, and last year was up 50%. We're up another 20% over last year. So the numbers are really bad. And I think that, um, you know, we're all struggling, not just not just the mayor and the superintendent, all of the violence prevention organizations that I work with. We're all struggling. So I mean, this isn't about pointing fingers. This is about what I would like to see is everybody stop pointing fingers and everybody come together and say what we're doing isn't working. And we got to We got to really change what we're doing. And that's not we're not there yet. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about what we are doing that isn't working. What is what is it that we are doing? Uh, well, the big, the big pile of money is in the police department, $1.7 billion. And uh, what I think police are doing, uh, as best I can tell, is mostly what they've always done. Um, uh, David Brown has pulled a whole lot of officers out of the neighborhoods and put them in these citywide units. Um, the previous guy had just disbanded those citywide units. And so he brought them back. And I can't tell what they're doing. But they're obviously not reducing, you know, shootings <laughs> because shootings are up. So um, I think that's a worthwhile question to ask. And I think that that decision really rests with the superintendent. I think that what they're not doing is they're not moving quickly enough on reforming just the, the profession of policing, which, you know, is long overdue. I mean, I don't know why we why we keep asking cops to enforce traffic laws? Why do we keep asking cops to deal with homeless people? Why do we keep asking to deal with, you know, domestic disputes, 90% of which are not, you know, are not extremely violent or super violent. A lot of them are, they need counseling, you know, I mean, obviously some of them are violent and, you know, my understanding is, is that police see these as in many ways, some of the most unpredictable calls to go to. So I appreciate that these are challenging situations but sending armed cops is seems to me the last resort not the first resort and uh you know our default solution to everything is to send armed cops and i think that a lot of our problems could be better addressed by unarmed social workers outreach workers uh you know clinicians uh you know youth workers uh respected community folks 
who know these young people and know them, you know. And so that's one thing we're not doing. Um, we're not pushing reform enough. We're not really thinking boldly about reform. Uh, we're still mostly locking up people uh, and hoping that somehow that's going to solve it. And it doesn't. You know, uh, one guns th- like crazy. We collect more guns than any city in the country. And yet we have more guns than any city in the country. So <laughs> that's not working. Yeah. Uh, so when you talk about um, uh, reforming the police department, a word I, I always hesitate to use, but uh, I'll use it in this case, reforming the police department by having police officers do things other than and that list that you went down, uh, intervening in domestic disputes. I'm with you 100%. I mean, the, but to, to be clear, I, I, I'm suggesting non-police ought to do some of those things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so would you could keep the police force at the current level? No. And just go ahead. No, I would dramatically shrink the size of the police force and dramatically shrink their level of responsibilities. I would, I would, I would, I would, um, you know, uh, use them more and more just for violent crime, just to investigate crimes. Uh, and, you know, if someone could show me that a police presence serves as a deterrent, I'm open to it. I see police sitting in cars, you know, the idea is they're in a car, they're ready to respond quickly to something. But it clearly isn't, isn't we don't have enough police to have a cop on every corner. That's not practical. We have more police than we've ever had. On a per capita basis, we have more than New York and like much more than Los Angeles, both of which have much lower rates of um, violent crime. So, you know, I don't know that police are an effective deterrent, you know, so I would use them much, much more to investigate violent crime. Because if you, if we did a better job of arresting people for violent crimes, uh, that would discourage street justice from happening. And right now, if 19 out of 20 shootings, I'm talking about shootings where someone gets shot, not just like somebody fires a gun in the air. 19 out of 20 shootings don't lead to an arrest. And at least I think only one out of two murders actually leads to an arrest. So in some cultures, in, our, in some communities in our city, um, you know, the retaliation is, is a big factor driving shootings. You know, they don't think that they can go to the police and report a shooting. They just have to take care of it themselves. And that's a real problem. So uh, no, let's I go back to the police and I would focus them much more just on violent crime. And I would use other people to, uh, no. you know, to, to do other things, especially traffic. I think traffic is like a third of their time enforcing mm-hmm. traffic laws. Why not just have unarmed people enforce them? You know what I mean? They can, they can get their license plate. If somebody takes off, they take off. Will there be one or two situations where something happens? Maybe possibly, but, the vast majority of times people will stop, they'll pull over, they'll show them their license, they'll take their ticket, and they'll leave. I don't see why we need armed cops. And as we know, a lot of those um, unfortunate incidents uh, 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 begin on, with uh, traffic, traffic um, incidents. You know, the, you know, the killings of black people by police officers often happens because of uh, a traffic stop. We have on the show uh, all the time aldermen uh, from the uh, Socialist Caucus, including uh, Rosanna uh, Rodriguez Sanchez, who appeared with I'm Peter. A I'm a yes, I know you are. And uh, Peter and uh, Rosanna were on a show we did at the Hideout, which was a great show. I urge everybody we have it on our sh- uh, in our catalog. You can listen to it. Uh, and 
Rosanna, I give her a lot of credit, Carlos, uh, Byron, all the, uh, Jeanette, all of the socialists are publicly calling for the things that you just articulated. Mm. Uh, and when they do it, they're labeled as a radical leftists who are out of touch with the mainstream. And um, it's the kiss of death if Democrats embrace uh, their uh, defund the police recommendations. Uh, so how do you deal with the political reality? You just mentioned when, we, when I talked about the, the parking meter deal that Mayor Daley would have had to fire all these police I remember that argument that was put out there. I didn't buy it then. But the point is, is that there's always a political argument to be made, Peter. You know yes. this uh, about the dangers of cutting police and how we're heading toward lawlessness. So yep. how do you deal with the political reality there? Well, the first thing I would do is I would frame this as pro-police, which is to say, uh, I think we're asking too much of police. And you're seeing it in uh, the morale is really way down. Suicides are on the rise. Uh, police wellness is a growing issue. Um, yeah, the fact that fewer and fewer people want to be police in the first place. Um, so uh, to me, you know, if, if I'm standing in front of a bunch of police officers trying to explain why I want to shrink the department down to 10,000 or even less from 13,000, I would say you're being asked to do too many things that you're not really trained to do. And so this is actually about uh, helping you be a more effective police officer by not asking you to handle a noise complaint with a bunch of kids playing basketball. That's not your job. We don't need you for that. By not asking you to pull someone over because of a taillight, we don't need you for that. Okay. What we need you for is to investigate serious crimes and to the effect, to the extent that it's effective. And I'm not convinced it is to deter crime. You know, I don't know how exactly they should do that because right now they're, sitting in their cars on the south and west sides of Chicago, but it's not making a difference. Uh, there's, not that, there's not enough of them, you know, uh, uh, to make a difference. But I don't think the answer is more of them. I think the answer is to use other people in the communities. We have a program in, in CRED called FLIP, and it, it stands for something, Flatlining Violence Inspires Peace. The guys came up with their own title. And FLIP takes former gang members, unarmed, and puts them in the hottest spots in the city, the places that are most likely to have gun violence, where two gangs are like right at their border and where they're literally most likely to have shootings. And we and they go out there right now. They're starting actually today. They go out there for like summer evenings from like three in the afternoon until three in the morning. And they just stand on those corners and they interact with the guys and they discourage them and they deal with them directly. And we've been doing it now for three years. Uh, we've had almost zero shootings at these locations. Now, the fact is it moves the shootings move to somewhere else where they aren't. But, but that presence does matter. It makes a difference. And these are unarmed guys. They have jackets on that says flip. The guys know who they are. The cops know who they are. It's all worked out that these guys have the what we call the license to operate on the street. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're respected. They're former gang guys or the former guys who are involved in what they call organizations. And it, 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 it's a tool and it's effective. And we're going to have 400 of them on the street starting today, literally, in like 12 neighborhoods of the city where we have real hotspots. I think those are the kind of things we should be doing a lot more. I think we need an army of psychologists. We have so many people who are traumatized from gun violence. Just do the math. Last year alone, 4,000 people 
were shot in this city. About 800 of them, 780 of them died. So that's 3,200 that were shot and are still alive, okay? Every one of them has at least one person in their life who was also traumatized. That's 6,000 people right there. If they have two people in their lives, you're getting up to nine or 10,000 people, okay? Somebody said to me, there's a lot of walking time bombs out there. We literally could use thousands of clinicians going out and helping these young men cope with, the, with what they saw as kids, what they grew up with seeing as teenagers, what they may have done themselves, what has been done to them, what has been done to people they know and love. I mean, there's so much trauma out there, and we're not going to solve that with armed police officers, you know? And that's where all the money is. That's where all the expense are. And then when you add in, Ben, when you add in our police department, you add in Kim Fox's office, you add in Tony Preckwinkle's jail, you add in uh, Governor Pritzker's prisons, you add in all the parole and probation, you add in the lost economic opportunity because no one is spending money in those neighborhoods. And you are talking billions and billions and billions of dollars that crime is costing us today. And for a fraction of that, I think we could start to turn it around. Well, I'm with you 100%. That last riff, you're beginning to sound like a Ben Jarofsky column. Uh, and uh, yeah, and not to bring all our conversations together, man. That $10 million we threw out the window on the parking meter deal would have come in really handle with these mental health programs. Just saying, uh, some old dogs never forget anything. I'm with you 100%, Peter, on this. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't think we should frame this as a socialist issue. I don't think we frame it as a centrist issue. It's not an anti-cop issue. This is a Chicago thing. And, and, and you know, I think the mayor agrees with this, understands this. I think... Um, you know, she hasn't figured out how to build that narrative to take this forward. I mean, she is a prosecutor by background, so she maybe has more faith in the criminal justice system than I do. I have, I, I have very little. I, I have not, not a lot of faith in it. I feel like, um, you know, and I haven't been a gun, a, 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 um, a crime victim in my life, you know, in any meaningful way. You know, I got jumped when I was well, a kid. I- they took my baseball mitt. I never got over it. But, uh, <laughs> no, thank uh, goodness. Uh, the African-American community, and you yeah. asked them about defunding the police or about this stuff. They are really, really of multiple minds on this. Yeah. No, they really hate police brutality. But the idea, but they want safety. And so th- it, this is a complicated narrative. And I think that as a city, we struggle with it. I won't say it's just the mayor. I think Mayor Daly struggled with it. Mayor Emanuel struggled with it. She's struggling with it. And then you well, have the FLP just sitting over there saying, you hate cops, you hate cops, you know, vote of no confidence. This is their third vote of no confidence in 10 years. So big deal. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, but again, the mayor is the chief. We, we're coming full circle. The mayor's the person in charge. Uh, she is elected just like Mayor Rahm was elected and Mayor Day was elected to have a vision of how to deal with these things. Absolutely. I'm going to and, uh, and I, I feel this is me speaking. I'm with you hundred uh, percent on the need. And I see what the, it's so ironic because every now and then it's like the parts of the city don't even talk to each other. So it's ironic. You'll have a newspaper article that'll appear time to time about the suicide rates among police officers and how more police officers have killed themselves in the last year and how there's so much depression and we need mental health. 
And yet when you advocate for mental health in general, spending more money with clinics or with uh, even just going school clinicians, anything, Peter, then, you know, you, 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 if you advocate for that, you're like soft on crime. If it means moving money from a police, you're soft on crime. You get what I'm saying? It's like the people who are saying we need more clinicians for cops are not listening to the same people who are saying don't waste money uh, on uh, clinicians. Right, right, right. Well, you know, um, this. And that's the mayor's. Let me just finish. That's the mayor's job. Yes. To articulate uh, a world vision that is going to help Chicago move forward. Go ahead. Yes, that's exactly right. The mayor's job is the narrative. I often call it the narrative. And it is the mayor's job to drive the narrative. And, uh, you know, and I think she struggled with it. I, you know, we had 48 people shot last weekend and a story came out in the paper on Monday, uh, or maybe it was on Tuesday based on a Monday appearance by the mayor in the soup. And, you know, she talked about guns, but we've been talking about guns a long time and we've been collecting them forever. You know, she talked about a, you know, multi-jurisdictional task force with the U S attorney. Well, daily poll for that 30 years ago, I'm pretty sure they did it. Pretty sure it didn't make that much difference. You know, you get a couple of gun traffickers, big deal. So, you know, I I think that we're just not thinking boldly enough. And it's hard. She's got to build a case for why we have to think much more boldly. And, you know, in in her defense, I mean, she's she's been she's she's she inherited a um, huge deficit that she had to deal with. That was the first thing. Then we had pandemic and. Uh, you know, she's had a ton of pressure from the CTU over the school stuff. So, you know, this has not been an easy ride for her first two years. I hope the next two go better. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I want her to succeed. I've been a little critical of some of this stuff as I am today. I'm not holding back. Um, but, you know, the last thing I want is to see Chicago uh, suffer, uh, you know, and, 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 and when I get close to an issue, like right now, I'm really close to the crime issue because I'm working on it. You just see what's not working and what we're doing isn't working. And, you know, the sooner we all admit that and, and, and confront it, the better off we're going to be. Right. I struggle to understand how an elected police board is going to somehow make it all better. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. By the way, the if uh, under the as I understand it, the voters will get an opportunity at a, re, at a referendum if this bill passes, if it doesn't Correct. get buried. The voters will get a chance to weigh in on whether they want this police board to have a hiring and firing powers over a superintendent. So the voters, it that will be democracy. What has been denied us year after year. The attitude has always been, Peter, that autocracy is what we need. We need a strong, powerful mayor who could uh, well, I mean, I do remind you, mayors world. get elected, right? I mean, we do have something called democracy. It just happens every four years, not every four days. <laughs> All right, right, fair enough. We'll not go down that path again. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm just going to say one word uh, in defense of my beloved Chicago Teachers Union. Yes, they've given uh, uh, Mayor Lori life with grief, but they're the only force out there fighting using all their power for the things you were articulating that we need. They're the ones who went on strike for more uh, nurses and clinicians. I'm just saying it. They took the heat. All the editorial board writers ripped them. Shut up. Get in that classroom. Take the raise. Don't talk about nurses. We'll give you nurses when we're ready to give you nurses. I'm just saying, Peter, you know, they're the ones putting out, you know what I'm saying? And they get ripped. I'm just throwing that out. there. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I, I, I don't, I didn't disagree with them on the issues. I disagreed with their, uh, with their inclination to threaten a strike sort of whenever they don't get their way. 
you know, I, I just want them to be partners, not just in getting nurses and clinicians into schools and paying teachers fairly, which I'm always for, uh, um, but in helping improve the schools and mm-hmm. make them better. And I feel like during the pandemic, you know, I, 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 you know what, I won't even introduce that one now. It's too big a topic, but I just feel like they put a lot of pressure on the mayor at a tough, tough, tough time. Or maybe we'll bring you on with Stacey Davis Gates someday and see how that goes. Uh, all right. Uh, let's, I'm going to close it down by asking, addressing the same issue, but from a wider uh, perspective. And I've been reading articles in all the newspapers that crime is up, not just in Chicago, but across the country. So yep. we've been talking about in terms of what exactly Chicago is doing right or wrong, mostly. Um, what's your sense about why crime is up? across the country, even New York, LA, uh, cities that were very proud of the fact that they had uh, relatively low uh, murder rates, at least compared to Chicago. It's, what's the impact of the pandemic? You know, which in general- I believe it, the pandemic was a big factor. Um, it created a lot of stress for people. Um, it created a lot of sadness, you know, um, in the communities where you saw gun violence increase. Those are the communities that lost the most people communities, low-income communities of color. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about this pandemic, but imagine what it's like to be in a house with five, a two-bedroom house with five or six people where three of the, or four of them all have to go to work, don't work on Zoom, right? Versus houses with, you know, two middle-aged people, you know, with five bedrooms and, you know, everybody can work on Zoom. So, you know, societal inequity really, really shows up when, uh, you know, you have a crisis like this. Or as Warren Buffett once put it, you know, when the tide goes out, you really find out who's swimming naked. And, uh, you know, the tide went out and the stress went up and there was economic loss. And, uh, you know, there's all that untreated trauma. That's just one theory. Obviously, the George Floyd uh the George Floyd uh, murder uh, really catalyzed a lot of frustration, um, especially in communities of color. Uh, and that's another theory that that contributed to it. Uh, no one ever really knows the answer, and it's probably not the same in every city. Um, it's, those are the two big ones that everybody talks about in 2020. I mean, and 2020 really was, but it, it, and, and the economy, obviously. Mm. You know, the tighter economy is, is invariably going to push more people into, uh, you know, the illegal economy. And once that happens, things happen. Well, we're uh, pretty much out of time. So we don't have a whole bunch of time, but I got to get a, a Peter Cunningham uh, weigh in on uh, president Joe Biden. And uh, it's, I mean, I think he's doing great. I, I, you know, I, I've been saying that he woke up last March, a year ago, March, uh, having won the South Carolina primary and the world just changed overnight. Yeah. And within a couple of weeks, he was the front runner and it was over. It was over a month later. I think Bernie was out or whatever. And he knew that there was a Joe Biden guy. There was a guy he needed to be. There was a candidate he needed to be. There was a president he needed to be. And that guy has not changed one bit. He's, he, you know, no more gaff Joe. This is now, uh, you know, heartfelt, humble, sincere, middle-class Joe. And he, he locked into that persona, which was not, it's not a fake persona, but I think it got lost sometimes 
over the course of his career. But he locked into that, which I think, again, is a legitimate, authentic persona, and he has never wavered from it. And while, you know, he doesn't take the bait on the culture war stuff, he doesn't take the bait on Trump, he doesn't take the bait on January 6th, he's, he's kept really clear about his goals and his priorities. And that, you talk about what leadership is, you talk about the challenges the mayors had. That's the job. Why are you, why did you get elected? What did they vote? Who, why did they vote for you? What promise did you make and what represents success to you? You should be able to answer all those questions and everybody should be able to answer all those questions. And in Joe's case, the answer is I'm going to bring back the American middle class and everything I do is all going to feed into that narrative. And I think that, you know, in some ways, the mayor who's new to politics just needs to go through the same exercise. What's that core, core, core narrative that is hers, hers uniquely. And maybe, you know, this thing about diversity and reporters was a way of her getting back to an issue that maybe she'd forgotten about. Maybe she hadn't, you know, hadn't leaned on that. It cares about it. She definitely cares about it. She embodies it. It's true. It's authentic. She said, why am I the mayor in a city covered by white male men, o- overwhelmingly white male men? That's a good question to ask. So we're all talking about it. Yeah, we're all talking. I'll give her credit for asking it. Uh, gave me something to talk about yesterday, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, Romana Hussein will be joining us tomorrow. We'll be talking about it more. So uh, Romana's got so many thoughts on this, ladies and gentlemen, just promoting that conversation. Uh, she's been sharing them bits and pieces uh, with me. Peter, I let it uh, the time go too long in between visits. I'm going to be much uh, better about uh, reaching out to you uh, to bring you on because it's always a blast talking to you, uh, even if we don't see eye to eye on absolutely everything. <laughs> we see eye to eye on. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Always fun. It is fun. And uh, next time, come on, we're going to make you play the guitar again. He's, you, know, you know, he's been ducking and dodging that D. When are we going, goes, when are we going live again? When are we? Uh, when are we? When are we getting back in the room together? Uh, I don't think those days will ever return, Peter. I think we'll be forever. Uh, that's a whole other conversation for another time. But uh, I, in particular, uh, have really come to love <laughs> my attic overlooking the alley. But we can always do remotes. And Peter Cunningham invited me. I'm going to remind him of this to do a remote in his backyard. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. Go to your backyard, do a show, bring people in, get Rosanna in. I'll invite Stacey Davis Gates, see if she come there. That'd and, be great. Uh, I'd love that. I think it would be a great. Uh, it, this is how we work up. We work up. So, like, Mayor Lightfoot hasn't, it's really hard for her to reach out to Stacey Davis Gates. We'll do it like, we'll start with Peter. And then from there, we'll work it up. And Mayor Lightfoot will like, can reach out to Stacey Davis Gates or something. How about that, Peter? Is that a, a good? Yeah. That'll be what they call a bridge. Good right? plan. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll happily host and, uh, you know, provide the tea and, uh, and uh, you know, pastries. Very good. I can't wait. I'm hungry already. All right. That's the great Peter Cunningham. Peter PC Cunningham. Thank you very much. I also want to thank Miles Porter uh, for our baseball discussion. And I want to thank Dennis in particular for allowing that to happen. You know, he's a benevolent boss. Uh, Dr. D. You are welcome, buddy. You're welcome. By the way, can I just say something? Miles was ready to go. Yeah. He was riffing, man. Uh, yeah, and he uh, did a great job. And of course, in all seriousness, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of Joe Balton and Long, without whom this show would be possible. And it's Peter P.C. Cunningham, Tony LaRussa, Marty Russo, and Miles Porter will tell you. Back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. 
Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Hey, and remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky or wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. You can always send us an email, BennyJShow at gmail.com. Find us online at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. And you can call this show. It's true. 708-658-4788. That number again is 708-658-4788. We haven't had a voicemail in like a month. Someone send us a voicemail. Tomorrow on the program, we recap the week that was with a Lollapalooza special of Oh, What a Week It Was. Oh,